0: Welcome to Psydactic Residency Edition. I am Dr. O'Leary, and today is Friday, July 14th, 2023. This is a podcast about psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience. If you haven't been here before, then I welcome you. I put these episodes together primarily for my own benefit. By having to make something like this, I'm forced to dig deep into things, reread it again and again, and try to interpret what I don't get the first time. This means that what you get here when you listen to this is my own formulation. I have no editorial staff. Um, I don't have anyone fact-checking me here, and I know that at times I'm going to get some things wrong. So please forgive me for that. Do your own searches and if what I say is wrong, let me know about it. I have a feedback form available at com. Besides being relatively hairless apes, there are some things about humans that make us special among animals. In the past, people have noted things like, well... We have big brains and we use tools. Or, we contemplate the future and our own mortality. Or, we use a truly complex language, both verbal and written, to communicate complex ideas. These are things humans have and do. But what is it about our brains that make these things possible? More and more, neuroscientists are identifying crucial hubs or nodes within our brain that specialize in various tasks, but but none of these hubs work alone. Each has a complex set of inputs that are called afferents and outputs that are called efferents, and the networks that these form are what make truly complex things possible. When a basketball is unexpectedly flying at my face, I'm doing a lot more than merely swatting it away to protect myself. In milliseconds, I've already determined its position and estimated its path through space. I've made a guess as to what kind of object it is, determined which limb would be the best to block it with, placed myself in a social context, and with that information guessed, whether or not that ball was an intentional threat or an accident. My brain has also done a lot of other things in that same amount of time that I am not consciously aware of. We do all this because we have trained our brains over years or decades to pick up on multiple cues from our environment and construct a reality that we can place ourselves in. That is truly amazing. Neuroscience is painstakingly picking apart the various details of our brains, its organization and function. In this episode, I'm going to start a series that looks deeper into various brain regions and the networks that they're a part of in order to really help myself understand a little bit more about how all of these things happen and hopefully make myself a better psychiatrist in the end. I'm going to start by discussing that big blob of gooey mush at the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And in subsequent episodes, I'm going to discuss how the regions here function in tandem and with deeper structures within the brain to create what we think of When we say human, when I realize that I feel like I should have known something or something was truly amazing to me, I'll often just facepalm. My hand lands on my forehead, and ironically, it is anatomically correlating itself with the part of the brain that can help me to actually understand what just happened. That is the prefrontal cortex. There are three gross anatomical divisions of this part of the brain. If I had x-ray vision and I could stare up and slightly backwards into my brain, the first section I would encounter is called the orbitofrontal cortex. It's above the orbits in the front part. It sits just above and extends a little beyond the orbits of our eye sockets. If I then could slip my hands through my skull and rest it on the orbitofrontal cortex and then slide my hand over that bumpy surface into the center plane of my brain where there's a small space between the, the lobes, I would be touching the medial prefrontal cortex. It's in the middle, front part. If I followed my hands over the medial prefrontal cortex, up, and then over this sharp angle above it onto the surface of the brain that extends from that angle all the way down to the next angle, I would be tickling my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It is the topish and outsidish part of the front if i kept going over that next sharp curve i would end up back where i started in the orbitofrontal cortex now i'm going to go wash all this cerebral spinal fluid off my hands before i continue Each of the regions that I have just violated has specialized functions built into it. These regions get information from various other parts of the brain and the body, and they think about that information. They make sense of it. And then they send a signal to other parts of the brain to communicate what that sense is. In this episode, I'm going to review what each of these regions is known to do in general, and then in future episodes, I'm going to deal with each of them separately and talk about how they get information and how they send that processed information to other places uh, in order to figure out what to do about it. Let's start with the orbitofrontal cortex. If I were to damage one or both of your orbitofrontal cortices, other people may no longer be able to recognize you. I don't mean that you would appear different in your anatomy. I mean, even if there was no damage to your face, uh, you would no longer act the way you did before. You may be more outspoken, less concerned about what other people think about you. You may be described as tactless or rude, You could be inexplicably irritable and mean to people, or actually have an inappropriately good mood when maybe you really ought to at least pretend to be sad because everyone around you is sad. Your interests might change. You may become less conscientious, meaning that you really no longer care much about the consequences of your own actions or the quality of your work. You might even develop a kind of euphoria that looks a lot like mania. Overall, you may be less concerned about your environment, or even your own well-being. You might not feel hungry at the sight of your favorite food. In general, you've kind of lost a lot of the ability to place yourself in your environment in the way that most people would, and socially, you might be a jackass. If you turn your eyes way back into the brain, you would be staring at a relatively small region that in many respects determines your personality. That is your orbitofrontal cortex. That orbitofrontal region processes a lot of information from your internal and external environment and relays the importance or the salience of that information to a lot of other regions. Without the same kind of awareness that this region helps you have, you might become awkward and inappropriate or even poorly kempt. However, you would maintain your ability to do logical things like sort cards and make plans. This is because your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is still functioning fine. The prefrontal cortex in general has been referred to as like the executive centers of the brain, especially the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It does not receive direct somatosensory information from the spinal or cranial nerve tracts. Instead, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex gets this information after it has already been processed by other parts of the brain and then processes that information further in order to plan and, say, give orders to the rest of the brain. One side of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, usually the left side, but not always, contains an area called Broca's area, and that's specialized to process language and help us produce speech. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex also contains a large portion of our brain's working memory, which is the part of the memory system that stores this currently relevant information, both new and already learned information, about whatever it is that we're thinking about or doing in that moment in order to keep us on track and to give us options. This has been compared to like the RAM or random access memory that you have on your computer or your cell phone. Too little RAM and things go really, really slow. Here's where we make more considerate and conscious or conscientious decisions, where we follow a train of thought and consider multiple scenarios where we calculate some risk, where we make decisions despite having conflicting information. Damage to this area can make it difficult to actually decide on a course of action or initiate an action. Hypofunction or dysfunction of this area is thought to be part of the pathogenesis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because of the poor concentration and difficulty suppressing speech or movements that's often present in this disorder. But also with schizophrenia, where hypofunction or a relative disconnection of this area from other areas of the brain um, contributes to maybe the formation of delusions, or the inability to consider alternatives, or the inability to move on from one topic to another, um... This will make the patient disorganized in their thinking. But the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is most certainly involved in many, many other disorders. It is responsible for cognitive organization and flexibility. It might even be crucial when we need to lie. Part of deciding on what to say or not to say includes how much of the truth that content will contain. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex can help us decide that. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not the only part of our brain that helps us make decisions. Uh, Many parts of the medial prefrontal cortex are also crucial for this, especially if there is some very personal or kind of an immediate social context to consider when making a decision. While the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is more like, say, Mr. Spock arriving at decisions more exclusively based on logic, the medial prefrontal cortex is more like Captain Kirk using his intuition and feelings to inform his final decision. If you were able to take your brain out and set it on the table in front of you with the frontal lobes facing you, then you could put your hands in the praying position and kind of slide them between the left and the right frontal lobes. Your hands would be resting against the left and right medial prefrontal cortex. Now to get the entire Anatomical medial prefrontal cortex, you would need to open up some space between a couple of your fingers and let the genu of the corpus callosum kind of slide between them, because this region wraps itself around the genu and the rostrum of the corpus callosum. This anatomical definition captures many different regions, including the anterior cingulate gyrus, which um, can be separated out really kind of based on. Uh, functional specializations even though it's in the same anatomical area the more ventral section of the medial prefrontal cortex appears to take socially relevant information very seriously and help us make decisions based on that context it could be said that well it's our conscious conscience helping enforce moral principles helping us to understand that other people have their own minds and motivations and that that should be valued. This ventral part of the medial prefrontal cortex is also heavily involved in emotional and autonomic regulation, and it might also help with things like extinction learning when we basically have to unlearn something, especially something that was kind of conditioned into us in the past. Damage to this ventral medial prefrontal cortex can result in things like antisocial behaviors, uh, less emotional responses to things like, say, the suffering of other people. Um, you you wouldn't be able to relate to them when they're happy either, most likely. If you've seen like the Red Dragon shla- slash Silence of the Lambs movies, you may have noted a complete lack of empathy in Hannibal Lecter, so much so that he could pass a lie detector test just effortlessly. That is likely because his ventromedial prefrontal cortex is not activating his autonomic nervous system the way it would in a normal person. Another part of the medial prefrontal cortex is the dorso-medial prefrontal cortex. And from what I've read, the dorso-medial prefrontal cortex functions are not really known to be all that Different from the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, it helps to aid in this social salience, emotional regulation, theory of mind, just um, basically understanding that others have their own thoughts and feelings, and also the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex also happens is suspected of kind of giving us our own sense of identity that's separate from the rest of the world. Some of the evidence for this is that in patients who experience depersonalization, this area of the brain has been shown to be hypofunctioning or not functioning compared with non-affected controls. Finally, we have the anterior cingulate cortex, which is anatomically part of what you might call the medial prefrontal cortex, and the uh, anterior cingulate cortex is a major hub of the brain. It helps to assign salience or meaning to both like externally and internally generated information. It's really highly connected to other parts of the cortex, as well as to the anterior insula, the nucleus accumbens, the hypothalamus, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. So I'm going to save the anterior cingulate cortex for later. But in the next few episodes, I'm going to each of these gross regions, um, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex, and the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex separately, and explore in more depth how they're organized, even from a cellular level and all the way up to a network level, how they communicate with other parts of the nervous system, and how dysfunction in any of these regions can result in problems for an individual or for that individual's society in general. In some cases, we may actually be able to harness what we know about these regions in order to treat a wide range of neuropsychiatric disorders. Thank you for listening. I am Dr. O'Leary, and this has been an episode of Sidactic, Residency Edition.